This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Today we conclude uh, what was a surprising, uh, it was a serendipity, that is a welcomed surprise, a happy accident, as if there is such a thing, that we ended up in Romans 8. We had a Mother's Day sermon uh, from Romans 8.1 on there's no condemnation for moms, and then we just kept going and have worked our way through the whole chapter in seven, seven sermons that I think have affected a number of us as we have uh, understood the love of God in a better way and understood uh, how God is for us in some very real and tangible ways. So uh, it's been an encouraging, encouraging season, and we're coming to an end on today, and we're going back to where we were. So if you want to read and catch up uh, for next week, we're back at Acts 9. You read Acts 8, you'll have the context for Acts 9, so we'll start there next week. Okay, Romans 8, and we're going to finish up verses 31 through 39. Each line of this chapter has just been good news after good news after good news. So if you can contain some more good news, if, uh, if your barrel is not yet overflowing with good news, receive this good news from the Lord, for this is his word. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we love the language of no separation, no separation between us and your love. And so we pray today that you would introduce this reality to anyone in the room who's yet to meet you, anyone who's yet to trust Jesus, that they would receive new life today and that they would be touched deeply by the love of God. We pray for anyone here who already knows you, but we find ourselves distanced from the love of God, uh, numb to the love of God. I pray that you would awaken us today to this text of Scripture. And for those who are experiencing good times with you right now, Lord, they would say their walk with the Lord is great. I just pray that you would take those to a deeper place in your love that would be all securing. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to open our ears, to open our minds, and to speak life-changing words through this text. And we invite you to do so now. Lord, come and have your way. Show us your love and make us a people of your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Paul didn't uh, write in chapters. Those were all added much later. Uh, but usually the chapter breaks are pretty good because they break at places where there's thematic changes. So chapter 8 is kind of a unit, and Paul is coming to the end of that unit right here. And here's how he concludes this chapter that he's been writing. He starts in verse 31 saying, by saying, what shall we say to these things? I mean, really, what shall we say to these things? After he's told us all of these amazing things, which I'm going to review real quickly for you, but he's sort of saying, what else is there to say? I mean, what do we do about this? He's sort of saying, get out of here. Can you believe all of the stuff that I've just written? He probably wouldn't think of it that way. But can you believe all of the stuff that God has revealed? What, how in the world can we respond to that kind of reality? What kind of things? What shall we say, verse 31, to these things? What has he told us? Well, back at verse 1, he started, there is no condemnation right now for those in Christ. If you're a Christian today, if you're a believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation. God does not condemn you, will not condemn you forever. That's where the chapter starts. There is a freedom there that he's communicating to us. Secondly, he goes on to say, God did for us what we never could do ourselves. He sent Jesus to die, give his life for us, and save us. We couldn't keep the law and make ourselves right with God. That's an impossibility. That's an impossibility. We need a savior to come and save us. So he says that. Next he says that he's given us the spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives in us and will sustain us to the end. So if it's not enough that he's declared us righteous and said no condemnation, he's taken up residence in us. So he's not just saying, here's a bunch of rules, good luck on that. But he's saying, I'm going to live in you and change your heart and conform you to where these rules, these laws of the scripture, that's who you are internally. And beyond that, he goes on to say, not only has he done that, but the Spirit of God living in us is the power to put to death sin. So he doesn't say, I just give you a new life. Now, there's still going to be sin, so grit your teeth, get on a self-discipline plan, and sort of work it all out. But he says, no, this Spirit who lives in you is going to put to death the deeds of the body, he says, the deeds of sin. And if that's not enough, he says, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of adoption. So not only are you going to be Uh, It's not like you're left on your own to obey me. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to say you're never condemned. And more than that, I'm going to make you my child. So you're in a family and I'm your father, a perfect father. And you're going to be free from the slavery of fear, he says. You come out of slavery to sin and fear. I'm going to free you from fear and I'm going to make you my child. And my spirit's going to cry out, Abba, Father, through you, which is like a warm a uh, relational word for God. It's like calling God our dad or something like that. A perfect dad. Maybe your dad wasn't, but God is perfect. None of us are. None are perfect. No dads. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to have a, I'm going to be a perfect relationship, a perfect father to you. And he goes on to say, you're going to suffer in this chapter, but you're going to suffer with Christ. And the glory that awaits you is so great that if you could see it, your sufferings would feel very small. Now they don't feel small. They're very big. But there'll come a day when you're in glory, you'll look back and say that was very small in comparison to the glory of heaven. So he's given us that promise. He goes on to say, my spirit lives in you. Here's another thing. You're going to have times in your life where it's so bad, you don't even know how to pray. My spirit is going to pray through you with, wor- with groanings too deep for words. I'm going to invade you, and I'm gonna, the spirit's going to communicate to the Father truth on your behalf. So I'm going to even come pray for you when you're too weak to pray. 
And not only that, but everything that happens to you, verse 28, I'm going to work it for your good. All things that happen, I'm going to work to your good. I'm a dad who's going to care for every detail of your life, who's going to even pray for you when you're too desperate and too weak to do that. And everything that happens to you, I'm going to take it, good, bad, or indifferent, and I'm going to mold it to your good to make you more like Jesus. And then he steps back in verses 28 through 30 and says, here's the big picture. Before time even began, before there was ever even, before I created the universe, better be a better way to say it, before creation, I set my affection and love on you. I foreknew you. I predestined you. And then I sent my son to die for you before you were even born and be raised for you. And then one day on planet earth, I called you. You heard the gospel and I called life out of your dead spirit and you believed. And then I justified you and declared you righteous and one day I will certainly... He says it in the past tense, we were glorified. That's because it's so certain. I will raise you from the dead and give you a new resurrection body. So all of that sweep, eternity past to eternity future, that's what I've done for you. So what shall we say to these things? It's almost like Paul doesn't even know how to respond. So what he does is, or he doesn't have the right words to respond. So what he does is he asks five questions. He says, that is so amazing. What do we say to that? Let me ask you five questions. So today's sermon, I'm going to walk through these five questions and fill them out a little bit, and we're going to see how much God uh, loves us, how much he is for us, and try to understand what he has done for us, especially to grasp that in the midst of our difficulty. Question number one, verse 31. Uh, What shall we say then to all these things? Already talked about that, gave the whole context. Next, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, all of us in the room know what it's like like to have someone against us or things, circumstances against us. I had a, 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 just a kind of an awakening recently. This spring, I read through the Psalms um, in my devotions, a few, few Psalms each day. And the Psalms that are labeled of David, uh, meaning that he penned them, here's what I learned. It's amazing how many of them deal with enemies. David is constantly praying about responding to enemies. His life is one battle against enemies. Now, now granted, he's a king and, and he's got an army and so he's, he's involved in conflict in a way that you and, may, you and I may not be. He's in conflict for his life. But nonetheless, there is this sense of enemy and all of us can experience those who are against us in life. I mean, there's some people in the room today, you're going to go into work tomorrow and you're going to feel immediately like your boss is against you. And you're really regretting that I just mentioned work and boss, because you got a little anxiety in your stomach when I just mentioned that, because you're going to go in and see the boss, get an email from the boss, and your boss is opposed to you for whatever reason. Some of you have coworkers that are against you. They want your job. They're angling. They're deceiving. They're posturing. They're ste- trying to steal the business, the sales for themselves. They're trying to impress the supervisor, so that they get ahead and maybe at your expense by making you look worse. And so you have, a, a, you have a coworker that's against you. Maybe you have a neighbor that's against you. That neighbor that's really particular and really uptight. Every neighborhood has this neighbor and maybe you live next door. And so when there's a knock on a door, oh, there's the, what do we do this time? There's the neighbor. You've got a neighbor that's opposed to you. Maybe it's much closer than that. Maybe it's in your family. So my spouse is against me. My spouse is distant. My spouse is critical 
my spouse is unfaithful. My spouse is against me. Or maybe it's your children. They were really cute and cuddly and lots of fun at age two, three, and four, but now they're an early teen, a middle teen, a late teen. They're in their 20s. They moved out of your house. They're on their own, whatever. But they're against you. They are opposed to you. They resent you. And you're saying, what happened? When I think this, when I read that verse, who's against you, I instantly went to a family member, you'd say. Or it's a parent, maybe it's your parents. Or a sibling, someone really close. Probably the most painful experience is someone you're really close to being for you and you for them, transitioning to someone who is against you. That is a gut-wrenching experience. Maybe it's someone in the church. At Grace Church? Yeah, at Grace Church. But isn't our name Grace? Yes, and we don't live up to our name because we're human and we love the grace of God, but we don't always express the grace of God to others the way Jesus expresses it to us. And so you say, boy, when I think of someone against me, it's someone in my small group. It's someone who rudely confronted me and judged me. It's someone that I heard was telling things about me. It's someone that I shared in confidence something, and they went and shared that with other people. That is against me. They've excluded me. They're judging me. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's yourself. The Bible, we talked about in this chapter, we all have flesh. We have a sinful nature. We're against ourselves. Sometimes the greatest against is me. I mean, I want to do this, Paul says, but I do this instead. I'm against me. I, I don't want to do that, but I do it instead. I'm against me. So the flesh is against us. The devil is against us. The Bible teaches that there's a real devil and that there's real spiritual powers and they attack and they accuse. So maybe you have spiritual powers that are against you. So do we know something or someone that's against us? Yes, but the question isn't, is anybody against you? Look back at the Bible. Here's the question, verse number 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying, if God is on your side, who possibly could stand against God? This is an important preposition for. God for us. God for me. If God is for me, who can be against me? God wants you to feel the power of his protection of being on your side no matter what comes against you. Now, all of these things about someone being against us, if, if people are against you because you're a jerk, that's not what we're talking about here. That just be unjerky, quit being a jerk, repent of jerkiness, and, and, and be godly, I guess. So turn from that. What we're talking about is people who are opposing us when maybe we didn't do anything or we didn't, we're just being opposed by other people, not because we're opposing them and they're retaliating. So have you ever known the power, this is what God wants us to feel, the power of protection and coverage and God with us and for us when someone's against you? I had a memory this week. It was almost like a flashback. I haven't thought about this in years. I didn't know I ever told, I don't think I told my parents, I don't think I've ever told, I've never told my wife, I've never told anybody this. So I'm about to say something I've never said to anybody. It's not that juicy, but uh, here, here's, here's what it was. My wife's freaking out on the front. What's he going to say? Uh, <clears throat> when I was in second grade, I was riding the bus, little cute Craigie in the back there, just riding the bus, 
and uh, there's a guy on the bus, he's kind of a bully, and he says, when we get to the bus stop and get off, I'm going to beat you up. Whoa. Now, when you're in second grade and somebody's going to beat you up, that's like the most terrifying thing. What's more terrifying? You know, you're just like, oh, no, I'm going to get beat up. It's going to be public. Uh, Let me die in private. I'm going to die in somebody's front yard off the bus stop there. So so I I wasn't strong, but I was smart. So what I did was I told a friend on the bus who was bigger and stronger than said bully, uh, who my friend, I said, he's going to beat me up. And my friend said, oh, no, he's not. So the bus comes up to the bus stop. I walk out. My friend is there. The bully is there. And the bully sees the friend and just scurries off in fear and did nothing. There's no punches thrown or anything like that. But the point of the story is I remember the feeling of safety and protection by having someone big on my side protect me from someone who was against me. Now that's, a, that's not a silly story. It meant a lot at second grade. But right now we look back and go, that's a pretty silly story compared to everything in life now as an adult. But if you could take that event and you could magnify it infinitely, that's your relationship with God. God is for you. And no one can come against you. No one can even come near you apart from his permission to start with. And God is for you. He is with you. I love this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? When you ask that question, there's utter silence. There's crickets. There's no answer. There's no answer. Nothing, no one, no circumstances can be against you if God is for you. He predestined you from eternity past. He's going to raise you to be in his presence for eternity future. And he's going to care for you all along the way because he loves you. He's for you. I would say he's on your side, but that's not really what it is. It's he's drawn you to his side and unified you, united you with his son, Jesus Christ. We're in Christ. He's for us in Christ. So it's not just like he picked your team. It's he brought you in union with himself. And so now he, nothing can come against you. He chose you so no one, therefore, can oppose you. Question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one and no thing. Question number two, it's in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Here's something really important, I believe, for us to grasp. Sometimes people talk about the love of God and it's just this super vague deal. God loves you. God God just loves you. And it can be received in a number of ways I think is unhelpful. It could be, oh, that means God's just gushing about me. Uh, That means like, oh, he loves me, I love. Okay, it's like a summer romance going on, summer romance novel or something. It's like, it's sentimental in nature. Now, God does have affections for us. I don't mean to minimize that at all. All I'm saying is that in the Bible, the love of God is tangible. It's not just a message. Hey, love you. It's tangible. And the love of God, as this verse says, um, when he talks about here, when he talks about God for us in this situation and God's grace for us, he's going to mention love in a minute. But when he talks about God's grace for us, it's super specific and it's super tangible. It is costly love. It is sacrificial love. 
It is demonstrable love. It is apparent love. It's not just affection with nothing to back it up. It's a bloodied man on a cross gasping for breath and dying as a sacrifice in our place and given for us by the Father. That that's what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Whenever you think of the love of God, there's a lot of ways we see the love of God and experience it. But this is the starting point, is that God loved me so much that he gave his son whom he loved. His son, his dearly loved son. He gave his dearly loved son to suffer for my sin because he loved me. How do I know God loved me? Because he gave for me his son in a costly way. And when you think about that, God loves me. How do I know it? Because he gave the one most precious for me. That's an interesting dynamic, that God loved me so much that he gave the one he loved. Pastor and professor Derek Thomas, in a book on Romans 8, wrote the following. He said, when we look at the cross... It almost seems, I probably should have underlined that, it almost seems as though the Father loves us more than he loves his own Son. That cannot be, of course, but it looks like that. He loves us that much. No greater evidence of the Father's love for us is imaginable or necessary. See, that's the point. If he gave Jesus, whom he loves infinitely, If he gave the one he loves for us, does that not mean his love for us is beyond description? It's glorious, wonderful love for us. He gave his son because he loves us. Now he says, if he did that, will he not with him give us all things? So this is is an argument from the greater to the lesser. So he's saying, if he gave the most costly sacrifice and met our greatest need to forgive us of our sins, will he not take care of all the smaller stuff? We're all sitting in here with a ton of stuff on us today. You've got burdens, you've got weights, you've got questions, you're perplexed, we're fearful, we're anxious, we're discouraged, we've got circumstances around us, we don't know how they're going to work out, we've got financial needs, we've got relational gaps, we've got health challenges, some of us are getting older and weaker and all that goes along with that. We've got all these challenges. Here's what Paul's saying in this verse. If he loves his son so much and he gave him for you, he made the greatest sacrifice, his son enduring the father's judgment, he made the greatest sacrifice because he loves you that much. Will he not take care of smaller things? In other words, if you compare giving the son in sacrifice to providing money for your bills, those are like two different categories. And if he did the really huge one, will he not do the other one? Will he take care of all things? What's all things? Well, the verses before, he had just said, he predestined us and he will glorify us. He goes from eternity past to eternity future, everything in between, that's all things. God will give you everything you need in life. God will give you everything you need to be conformed to the image of his son. God will give you everything you need to grow in Christ. And if you want to live life in the, we could say, the felt love of God, if you want to live life conscious of God's love, 
If you want to live aware of God's love, buoyed up and sort of floating and held up by the love of God rather than drowning in despair, if we really want that, then this is where we start. We start with saying, God, look what you sacrificially gave. Now I know that that reminds me, that confirms to me, that secures me in your love so that, I, so that I'm more confident in your love when I view all these other difficulties in my life. I'm confident because of what you've done. That's the the message of love. As Thomas said, there's no greater evidence of the Father's love imaginable. There's no greater evidence necessary. That's how he has proved his love for us. Question three. So he started with, if God is for us, who can be against us? Love that question. He who did not spare his son, will he not give us all things? Wonderful. Question three is found in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Okay, now here's a couple theology words in here if that's, that may be new to you, but these are really good words because they talk to us about the grace of God, the care of God. The first is this. He says, if, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the word charge and the word justify are legal words. So it's a picture of a, of a judge in a courtroom God the judge and you or me, the guilty party. But it says that we're elect, first of all. So before there was even a world, God had already set his affection on us. God had already set his love on us. So that's how we're described in this. It means chosen by God. So God had already chosen us by his love before time. And now he has justified us. And what that means is he's declared us righteous. So we're guilty standing before a judge, but because of what Jesus did, if we believe in Jesus, all of his righteousness is credited to us and our sin is put on Jesus. So it's an exchange, so we're declared righteous. So he's saying the God of the universe who chose you ahead of time, then sent Jesus, then forgave all your sins, he says you're not guilty. He says you're righteous, so who's going to press any charges? Who's got any charge to come into the courtroom and say to God, hey, they did this. God says they've been declared righteous, they're forgiven. Hey, they're not doing that and they should be. They've been declared righteous, they're forgiven. My son paid for that. Yeah, but they're failing to, but my son obeyed perfectly the law and that righteousness is given to them. That's justified. So he's saying we are justified because of what Jesus did for us, dying for us and obeying for us as well. So who's going to bring any charge? So who's the person who's going to come in and say, you don't have right standing with God. God doesn't love you because you blah, 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 did whatever. Who's going to say that? God's going to say, get out of here. That's not true. I've declared them righteous. I'm for them. Nothing will separate me from them. I have paid the greatest price. I will give them all things. See, here's the big point where he says justifies, we're justified. What he's saying is we don't relate to God based on our works or our actions. Okay, listen to this. God does not relate to, you are not in a status today. Your status before God is not based on your performance. Your acceptance before God is not based on what you have done. It's based on what Christ has done. God's love for you is not based on your actions, but on the actions of Christ. That is very freeing because many of us don't live that way. We don't live with an awareness that we're justified. So we don't wake up in the morning and say, God has declared me righteous because of Christ. Nothing I do today will will change my position before God as one who is declared righteous, welcomed, accepted before him. Nothing I do. 
What we tend to do, another theology word, sanctify. We tend to look at our sanctification, which is our growth in our character. And we tend to say, God relates to me based on my sanctification. Meaning that my status is based on how good I'm doing. Like using correct English. How well I'm doing. And so we think, I'm really failing, so God's mad at me. So the judge is saying, wait a minute, I, I take back that judgment. I said not innocent, I mean, I said innocent, not guilty. I'm changing that because of what you just did. So actually, you're in trouble with me now. I've changed myself. I'm going to distance myself from you. You go get yourself more righteous and come back in, and then you see me. You, you're just in the penalty box for a while. I don't accept you. I don't welcome you. I don't love you until you do something, and you come back in, and then you can earn my love. We can, we can, you can make it up. I mean, we can get back in good relationship if you... That is not God. God is, there is nothing you can do that will affect his love for you because you don't relate to him by your good works. If, if he didn't love you for your good works, how is he going to stop loving you for your bad works now? This is how a, a Pastor Charles Spurgeon said it. He was a, British, uh, a great British preacher in the 19th century. This is what he said. Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. You you didn't get right by God with your good works you're not going to stay right by God with your good works. In the beginning, God didn't love you because you were good, and he's going to continue. His love is not based on your works. That is a very freeing truth. Well, man, if everybody believed that, wouldn't everybody go off the rails in crazy sin and rebellion? No. If everybody believed that and that gripped our heart, we would want to live for God, that kind of a lovely, caring, gracious, merciful God. We'd want to live for him with everything we are. Because that kind of love compels relationship and communion and obedience and glorifying God. That kind of love compels that. The judge who may whack you at any moment, that breeds fear and we run from God or we run to our own righteousness. This kind of love is so freeing. God loves you because he loves you and he demonstrated it in Christ. That is meant to melt our heart, to warm us to fill us with his spirit so that we want to know more. Who wouldn't want to know more of that kind of love? Who wouldn't want to be closer to that God? The kind of God who loves us and shows mercy to us no matter what. That compels our hearts. We, we run. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that's the kindness of God. Fourth question, who is to condemn? Very similar Who is to condemn? So who's going to condemn you? My flesh condemns me. I feel really bad about me. Then tell your flesh to shut up and read the Bible. Let's let's look here. It sounds a little harsh, but let's not listen to our flesh. Let's get a new voice in our ear. Let's get a new truth in our spirit. Let's get a new reality before us. Who's going to condemn you? It's, It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Why? Well, look what he says, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who's going to condemn you? Jesus died for all your sins, so there's none that you are being held guilty for. Not only that, but he raised new life, conquered death, conquered sin. He raised to life, conquered the devil, 
assured you that because he rose, you will will be raised one day as well. And now he's interceding for you. He's at the right hand of God with his nail-scarred hands. And he he is pleading his blood for us constantly. We are with him. So who's going to insert themselves at the throne of grace? Who's going to insert themselves and say, well, I don't really care what the Lamb of God says. I say, you're guilty. No one. No one. I love what uh, Ray Ortland says. We've kind of been reading a book, many of us, by him on chapter, on Romans 8. And he said, we can therefore confidently challenge the universe You ever felt like challenging the universe? That's pretty big. We can confidently challenge the universe with all its inhabitants, human and demonic. Who is he that condemns? There will never be any answer. There's no answer. No one condemns you. No one has a right to condemn you before Christ. You don't have a right to condemn yourself. The devil does not have a right to condemn you. Others do not have a right to condemn you because they will be challenging the very judgment of God and the very work of Jesus and they would be calling into question the very love of God, and no one will do that. Everyone will be silenced before the throne of grace. Fifth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the climax of the whole chapter, that question. Based on all this, how could anyone, anything separate us from God's love? His love is permanently fixed to us. Nothing could possibly separate us Now, there are contenders. There are those who want to separate us. There are those who want to say, look at this. How can God love you if this is going on? And so he identifies some of those. So immediately, who can separate us from the love of God? If we would say, well, what about this? He's going to go ahead and anticipate that and mention a few. So look what he says, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation. That word means trouble. Trouble. Or distress, it means hardship. What about distress and tribulation? What if you are in the midst of trouble? Then does it feel like God loves you? Then do you believe God loves you? Where's God in the midst of your trouble? If God loves you so much, why are you having distress? Why are you in hardship? You know, many of us carry trouble from our past and it haunts us today. So today we can wrestle with does God love me because we've got this troubling past and it just carries forward. And sometimes it's shouting in our ear and sometimes it's just a whisper, but it's always there or regularly there. Last week, Rob mentioned some of those. He was talking about weakness and he was saying how various things in our life can serve to make us feel weak in an ongoing way. And trouble's the same way. You know, he mentioned that... um, some of us have, have been the recipient of great harm and great sin from others. Maybe you've been abused in any, in any sort of way. And that is a trouble that someone violated you in the past, and now you carry that trouble with you today. And that trouble can cause us to wonder, does God really love me? And if so, why? Or maybe you carry into your day today a stinging betrayal. Maybe you say, you know what, my spouse or my former spouse committed adultery and you live with that and you say, if, how could God let that, how could God love me with that kind of tribulation in my life, with that kind of sorrow, with that kind of suffering? 
Maybe you've had a physical incident in your life or one of your children have where you look back and you say, because of a physical illness, injury, you have suffered long-term. You have suffered long-term limitations in your life or someone near you has. And you say, given these constant limitations, it's not like that just happened in the past and now I moved on. It's like, what happened in the past with my health? That trails me. I, I, I experience that in my family or in my life. You say, how could God love me with that? With abuse, with betrayal, with physical suffering, these kinds of things. In the scripture here, God is wanting to communicate to us that he has given the greatest gift imaginable. He does not answer all the reasons for our suffering. We do not know. But we are promised that we suffer with Christ and we are promised this, that nothing can separate us from his love no matter what happened to us. Nothing can separate us, that God loves us. There's a mystery. The why question's a mystery. But this is not a mystery. God loves us. Some of us, it's not just our past, it's our present. You live here today, you're experiencing today a deep darkness in your soul. So what what does that trouble look like? I was speaking with someone a few days ago, uh, someone who is a counselor, and this person mentioned the topic of depression or spiritual depression and was saying, hey, that's a really common issue. I'm talking about Christians, by the way. That's a really common issue among believers that we can get to a place where it is dark in our soul, where we are lonely, where we are aching, where where it feels like there's a darkness that just invades and covers up and we can't even see the light. Times I can't even see, you'd say, I can't even see the sun. I, 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 the son of God's love, all I can see is, is the darkness. And that is a very common, I was just provoked when this person said this to me because I was thinking that is such a common experience. And, and sometimes what happens is it gets severe. And when it's severe, we often act in ways that, that, don't, that sometimes don't draw us to the love of God, but separate. Sometimes we isolate ourselves from others. We separate ourselves from others sometimes. Or we harm ourselves, we cut ourselves. Or we abuse alcohol. Or we take too many prescription pills because that is a way to sort of mute and press down, at least momentarily, the ache of the soul, which says I'm all alone in the, in the, in the, in the darkness of the soul that is present when some is, someone is depressed. This passage we're looking at is something God is wanting us to grasp his love because it is the truth that is a bedrock for us in the kind of troubles I'm talking about here, or much lesser troubles, but the kind of troubles that follow us or the kind of troubles we find ourselves in. I, uh, not too long ago, was in a hospital room, and I was with someone who had attempted suicide, a Christian, who had gotten so depressed that this person had attempted suicide. And the reason they were in the hospital was because they were receiving medical treatment from the effects of the attempt of the suicide. And they were really, it it was close. They could have killed themselves. Uh, But God intervened and rescued them in an amazing way. But in that moment, uh, and in that time of being in that hospital room, I just felt so inadequate. Like, what do you say? You, you don't walk into someone who has attempted to take their life, who's a believer, and just give a little glib thing, and it's going to be okay. Uh, because trouble's very complex. Trouble's not very simple. Tribulation, hardship, distress is not simple, typically. Distress of the soul is not simple. 
And I, I remember just thinking, you know, I can't just glibly say something. Hey, God works all things together. That's true, but it wasn't the moment to just toss out a, uh, uh, a glib statement. So I remember at one point, I remember doing a lot of listening and a lot of just sitting, a lot of just presence. But I remember at one point praying for this person, taking this person's hand, and I didn't quote these verses, but this was the heart of the prayer. God, would you come to this person and would you convince them of your love? Would you reveal afresh that nothing can separate them from your love? Not even, obviously, I didn't pray this, but not even what they did, not even what they felt, not even what was done to them. But nothing can separate. And it's in, the, it's in these times of the, when our souls are dark, when our hope is faded, when our hearts ache, that the truth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is something that God wants to solidify. See, God wants us to know this truth in times of difficulty. If you look at what he's saying here, he's not saying, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Shall having more money than you could possibly count? No. Shall being healthier than you've ever been, shall that separate you from the love of God? No. Shall having a marriage that is 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, will that separate you from the love of God? No. Will, have perf- will having perfect children separate you from the love of God? No. No, he says, you know what? When you are experiencing tribulation and distress, nothing will separate you from the love of God. He, he goes on to even harsher things, persecution, famine, nakedness. That means you don't have food and you don't have clothing. It will not separate you from the love of God. If you're so poor, you can't feed yourself, let us know. We'll help you. There's a community of love that would like to be the love of God to you here. But, but that will never separate you. What about if you're persecuted? What about if there's famine? What about if there's danger or sword? What about if I'm persecuted? What about if I'm in a country where Christians are persecuted and someone takes a sword and says, deny Christ or I'll cut your head off and kill you? What about if sword and impending martyrdom is above me? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And in those times, we can question. Can you imagine in the, having that kind of a harsh experience? All I wanted to do was serve Jesus, and now I'm in jail. All I wanted to do was serve Jesus, and now I have no food and clothing. All I wanted to do was know the Lord, and now someone's going to kill me? God, could you possibly love me? Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, even in those situations. He goes on to say, verse 36, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's an Old Testament passage. It's basically saying, you know, even if we as Christians are like just sheep in a slaughterhouse, if our lives are cheapened to the place of being a sheep to be killed, God loves us. Verse 27, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You say, I don't feel like a conqueror today. Look at the verse again. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're attached to Jesus. You're with Christ. And he conquered. And he is conquering. And he will conquer. And there will come a day when he will return. In the clouds and in glory, the book of Revelation talks about this. It pictures him coming in power as a warrior king to rule over all. And there'll be no question who rules. And there'll be no question who is for us. And there'll be no question that you never were separated from the love of God. He came back like he promised. That's in the scripture. Paul goes on and gives us a list of things. He says, I am sure, verse 38, I am sure and I believe God wants you sure and I believe God wants me sure today. 
I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, that probably means demonic powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He gives all these things, and he says nothing in all creation, that's everything, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in Christ, he loves us in Christ, and nothing will separate us. It's impossible It's impossible, it's unthinkable, it's unfathomable that you could ever be, as a Christian, out of the love of God, separated never for a moment when that bad thing happened to you or when this bad situation happened. It wasn't like, oh, God was off doing something else and for a moment he didn't love you. No, he will always love us and he ends with that great confidence. Our confidence is in his love, not in our own love for him. We live in an unstable world We are vulnerable. We live in a world that uh, lacks security. Humanly speaking, every one of us is insecure. None of us have confidence that we're going to avoid any of these things. This whole list of difficulties, any of them we could experience. There's no promise that you'll have no trouble. Really quite the opposite in the Bible. So we live in a difficult world, but God wants us to have this assurance that the eternal grip of God's love is on us, that he is holding us firmly, and the proof of that is Christ and what he did from us. He he wants us to know that we'll never be condemned and we'll never be separated from his love, even when it's perplexing, even when it's difficult, even when it hurts, even when it's confusing, even when the story's not working out the way we thought it would, even when the script's not the one we would have written, even when that person turned on me of all people, even when that is the situation, even when the diagnosis is terminal, even then, especially then, that's the whole context, especially then, God wants us to know, no matter what happens, that his love is with us, that he is for us, that he is with us, that he cares, and that he will protect us. This can kind of give us a great confidence for facing difficulty. That's the goal. Uh, I read something that I found very interesting. It's about John Chrysostom. Uh, He was an early church father, and uh, he was standing before an empress. I think her name's pronounced Eudoxia, but I'm not sure. Uh, And so she was threatening him if he continued preaching independently as he did. She was threatening him. And basically, he doesn't quote these verses, but it's basically what he's saying. His answer to her, and he's a bit defiant, appropriately defiant, but he's a bit defiant in the confidence of, his, of the love of God. So listen to this. He's facing all these things. Here's what the love of God is meant to do. Here's what the grace of God is meant to do for us. Eudoxia threatened him with banishment if he insisted upon his Christian independence as a preacher. He said, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, she said. You cannot kill me, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. 
I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. I don't recommend you go into your office tomorrow and defy your boss with this kind of language unless your boss has a sword and is ready to kill you. Then, I, then do it, then do it. But I, I don't think you, it's not talking about being arrogant. But what he said, when the greatest persecutions imaginable came to him, he rested in the love of God. I said, what are you going to do? I mean, really, who's going to condemn you? And who cares? Does it matter? All that matters is the voice of God. The judgment of God over your life is all that matters. It's all that matters. What can, do, what can happen to you? What's the worst thing? Well, we could suffer. He'll love you in your suffering and he'll be with you. But what if I die? He'll take you to his presence. You'll be present with him. To die is gain, Paul says. It's the promise of him being with us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.